Hello, welcome to Ask an Academic Auntie, our bonus mini episodes of Academic Aunties, where we take your questions and try to impart a little auntie wisdom. With us today, we have the fantastic, the brilliant, and the funny Dr. Tobin LeBlanc Haley, who is at X University in Toronto. She is an amazing scholar. Her work looks at critical disability studies and Canadian social policy. Hello, Auntie Tobin. Hello, Ethel. It's so nice to be here. Thanks for having me. I just waved like people could see me. <laughs> people could see the wave. <laughs> That's hilarious. All right, let's just jump right into it. So we have a question from a listener, Nazadine Panna. She asks us, how do you maintain your voice as a writer and instructor when academic institutions expect particular structures, tones, and writing styles? So that's question number one. So why don't you just jump right into it? There's another question as well that I think we can answer after we answer this one. This is, thank you uh, so much, uh, Nazanin, for, for your question. It's a, it's a great question and it, it one that kind of gave me pause because it presumes that, that I have a voice as a writer and an instructor. And I, I really think I'm still, you know, developing my voice as, as a writer and as a teacher and as a community member. Um, and, and, you know, it is a struggle and it's, and it's a process. And I think that my voice is probably changing in response to this really difficult and scary time that, that we're all living through. Um, I, I, and I, I understand, you know, what you're asking. The, the academy expects particular structures, tones, and writing styles. It, it expects a particular kind of language, a particular jargon, a particular genuflection to, de- you know, certain debates and certain kinds of methodological interventions. And so, yeah, it's a lot of, it's a lot of pressure on, on, on one voice, especially when you're trying to do critical scholarship that pushes back against all of those things sort of simultaneously. So wonderful question. Thank you for asking it. I'm not sure I have an answer, but I'm going to give it a, a try. Um, as my, as my voice is developing, I will say as a writer and as a, as an instructor, um, you know, and as a disability scholar, first and foremost, um, for me is access. So one of the things that academic institutions <laughs> expect is, is often inaccessible language. That coded language that is only available or understandable to people who have passed through the hallways of a particular institution and have done particular activities within an academic institution. And I do my best to reject all of that and to write in a way that is accessible as possible, in as plain language as possible. Yes, we have to use jargon sometimes because it's like our shorthand. And yes, we have to make reference to certain debates, but as much as possible, I try to write accessibly so that it can be picked up by people maybe who haven't been immersed in the literature that I have been immersed in and still be comprehensible and, and, and maybe even enjoyable. So that's sort of one of the ways in which I strive to maintain my voice is by always centering access um, in my writing. Um, yeah. That's really, that's such an important um, uh, perspective, anti-tobing, because one of the things that I'm learning, that I'm still learning, is that there seems to be a perception among some academics that the more, that the more opaque the writing is, the more deep it is. But in truth, 
I do think that the best writers, the best academics I've read are those who can use accessible language while imparting complex nuance and deep ideas. Um, I will add that your ability to kind of express yourself depends also on your stage in the program. And so I recognize uh, that if you, for instance, are a PhD student, there might be requirements set by your institution or by your supervisor and your committee uh, that requires that you follow a certain structure, right? In which case, you know, I would advise that you take this advice uh, because that will ultimately help you finish your dissertation because you need to be vetted uh, by these power brokers as well, right? Um, so that's just kind of one caveat I would add. And I would also, you know, just finally, you know, emphasize as well that this is an evolving process, right? Like, I am still trying to find my voice. I think Auntie Tobin is also saying, okay, what is it that I am contributing? So don't kind of feel guilty if you feel that you haven't found your voice, because I think for all of us, it's a lifelong journey to find that, right? <laughs> yeah, I really appreciate that caveat and, and the emphasis on sort of finding voice and settling on voice. I think it's always changing. Um, certainly, yes, do what your institution requires, get out of your PhD, and then, you know, um, uh, make, uh, make contributions in, in the way that you want to. But yes, of course, you must finish. <laughs> you must finish. <laughs> if, well, you know, if, if you want to finish, you're going to have to jump through the hoops the institution sets up for you, unfortunately. And, yeah. um, you know, for me, centering access is about pushing back against the ableism that is like woven into the academy. It's, and, and Jay Dolmage writes about this in Academic Ableism, right? It's in the infrastructure, it's in the physical structure of the academy, it's in the language that we use, it's in, in the assessment tools that we use, it's in the way that we write, it's the pace at which they expect us to produce. And, you know, accessible language and using a voice that invites community, that anticipates different learning styles and different reading styles and different, like, knowledge consumption styles is, is sort of my way of sort of thumbing my nose at, uh, at that ingrained ableism. I'm not sure how effectively I'm doing it, but... Uh, that's fantastic, Try. and I think we will drop the resource in the show notes as well. Uh, so Nazanin also has a second question, which is actually really interesting and super thought-provoking. She goes, how do you maintain space for creativity and joy when doing work that is draining? So this is a, such an important question and, and one that I... I probably struggle with a lot and I'm, I'm not sure I, I necessarily do a good job of taking on. But, you know, yeah, it's necessary to recognize that critical scholars are doing work that can be draining um, and that the world is draining. Yes. Right? And, and we live in right um, a draining world, a world that is violent, a world that does not, in my case, celebrate my female mad, like, personhood, right? And so, and the Academy certainly doesn't. And so, yeah, it is, it is profoundly draining. And when you do research in your own communities or communities adjacent to your own, um, yeah, it can be a very draining experience. So where do we find that creativity and joy so that we're not, um, you know, burnt out, but also that we're not just always doing damage-centered research, Right, that that doesn't become like our default. 
So we're doing data-centered research at all. So for me, I find creativity and joy in building long-term relationships in community. So multi-year, long-standing relationships of knowledge production in community where the you know, really common rhythms of everyday life, childbirth, moving, um, loss, new jobs, hardship, play out in these relationships as does sort of the, the research goals. And you get to know people on a really um, intimate level and you get to understand and, and sort of build a, co a community there and and be there for each other through that process and it, it's always a little weird right because you have to sort of maintain you know some distinctions between friend and researcher but you build this sort of you know co-production of knowledge community where sort of the everyday rhythms of life are present the everyday stuff that happens to us is present and conditions those relationships and i find real joy in that you celebrate the wins and then you have a space to to you know mourn the losses as well that's such a great answer and i think that speaks to both of our approaches to scholarship we are both, I would say, uh, community-engaged researchers who see knowledge as being important, not only because of the academic theories that they create, but also because of uh, community empowerment, so to speak, right? And so I think, um, you know, my answer to that question is, you know, as always, I keep quoting Rita DeMoon, <laughs> who I adore, but you need to find the work that feeds you. Don't do work that you feel uh, will just give you accolades. The work that you do has to be meaningful to you, right? And that's, I think, where you can find joy. Um, yeah, and I think a lot of us are dazzled into thinking or seduced into thinking that, oh, well, you know, there's more funding if you do this type of research or that type of work. And that may be so, right? But I think for me, one way that I can continue existing in this awful world that is the academy is to keep doing work that I think is important and that is meaningful to me. And I, I so agree and appreciate that. And I think that in that we find opportunities to experiment with in a fun, playful way um, different methodologies, right, and implement sort of different articulations of community-engaged research. You know, right now, um, myself and Dr. Laura Pin, my research partner on housing stuff, um, and I are finishing up a digital storytelling workshop. And we got the grant right before COVID, and then COVID hit, and it sure gave us an extension, but we had to do it. And so we had to, like, just you know, work with folk experiencing housing precarity and homelessness uh, in a digital uh, in a digital site. And we had to sort of throw up our hands and say to the community, like, listen, like all of our methodological training, all of our theoretical training has not prepared us for this. We're living in these, I hate this word, but unprecedented times. Um, and so, hey, let's let's work together and figure this out. And it gave us room for creativity and, and playfulness. And we sort of followed the cues of, of the folks in the room around, you know, what folk, what people were comfortable with and what they weren't comfortable with. And yeah, we created lots of room for for hard work and, and some, you know, hardship, but also, also fun. Awesome. And I think, you know, one final thing I'll say is that 
I recognize that myself and Professor Tobin are probably like critical political scientists, critical social scientists, critical sociologists. So we're not in the mainstream. And I think, I mean, speaking for myself, that allows me to be a little bit more creative because I do things that aren't considered conventional anyway, right? But that's something I think that um, listeners would have to decide as well. Like, you know, to what extent can they push? Can to, to what extent can they shape their projects according to disciplinary needs versus uh, doing it against disciplinary norms, right? But I think ultimately doing the work that you find meaningful and that feeds you is important advice courtesy of uh, Professor Rita Damood. Thank you so much, Auntie Tobin, for joining us today. Really, really, truly appreciate it. Do you have a question? Message us on Twitter at, at academicantie or send us an email to podcast at academicantis.com. We'd love to hear from you. Thank you again for listening. Bye.